Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. When I use the word grace, what do you think of? Do you think of a girl's name? It certainly is that. Do you think of um, somebody who is incredibly kind and compassionate? That is also true within the concept of this powerful idea. The Greek word for grace is the word charis. And it's rooted and sounds very similar. It's connected actually in the Greek language to a word for joy. But grace within the Christian tradition means that it is, it is something that God demonstrates to us because he gives us something that we do not deserve and withholds from us something that we do. It's not that he looks, he bypasses our mistakes. It's not that he doesn't see them. It's not that he pretends that they are not there. It's not that he, um, he treats us as if they don't matter. All of those ideas are, are weak ideas. God's grace toward those who trust in him is that he knows the depths of our brokenness and yet is utterly committed to loving us through it. He has made a way of dealing with those things that are wrong in our lives that cause hurt and pain to us and through us to others because of his kindness and his mercy. And that grace is supremely and manifestly and irrevocably demonstrated in what Jesus Christ has done for us. When God sent his son, a sinless, spotless, perfect son, he sent him as a sacrifice for us. He sent him as a, as a replacement for us. He sent him as the payment for our sin. He sent him as the one who could connect us back to our creator. All of that is a demonstration of God's grace toward us. Within the part of the church tradition that we sit, we would argue strongly and passionately that we can't come to God through anything other than grace. You can't earn your way toward him. 
You can't say, I deserve your favor. I deserve your kindness. I deserve your mercy. Instead, we come with empty hands and guilty hearts saying there's only one thing that I deserve and that is the consequences of my life choices. And God in his mercy and his grace says, I will give you not what you deserve, but what you don't deserve. The heartbeat of my Christian life is grace because the heartbeat of any Christian life is grace. And you might be sitting here tonight listening to me or watching online from somewhere, perhaps because you are um, struggling, perhaps because you're not yet a Christian, perhaps because you're exploring faith, perhaps because you are trying to find a new spiritual home. And you might feel as if you are far from God's grace, that you are so far away from it that he's not interested in you. I want to tell you this evening, God is interested in you. He knows your situation. He knows the darkest moment of your life. He knows the mistakes that you've made this week. He knows what you were doing last night. And he has the power to lift you out of the abyss that you often fall into. He has the ability to transform the darkest and the most difficult life and to give it hope and purpose and meaning and significance again. But that is not rooted in what you do for him. It's rooted in what he has done for you. Sometimes the longer we go, those of us that are already Christians, the further along the Christian road we go, the more we develop a sense of entitlement. I read a terrific article this week from a a young journalist in Chicago who was sitting in Starbucks um, at some point and had happened to hear two other young people, or an an older man and a younger woman, I think, maybe a father and a a son or a father and a daughter or something, talking about um, where they were in their lives. And the young woman and the the dad were talking about um, how, how difficult it was. And they had read an article somewhere that said that there was a whole generation in America that had grown up not having, not having, Um, experienced anything other than need. And this young journalist wrote an article that said, we are living in an entitlement culture. They think they're struggling because they don't have the latest phone and they don't have the most recent car and they think that they're poor. We must be careful. Those of us that have been Christians for a very long time must avoid living in an entitlement culture. I deserve God to do this. I've earned his favor in my life. I've been so faithful to him over the years. He has to be faithful back. I've demonstrated my commitment to him. Now he has to demonstrate his commitment back to me. If we're not careful, we end up developing an entitlement and a transaction relationship with God that thinks if I pay in my chips by attending church, reading the Bible, praying, tithing, and volunteering, then God will be good to me back. That's not the basis of our relationship with God. You know that, right? You know that the basis of a Christian relationship with God is what God has done for us. It's not because we deserve it. It's because he loves us. It's because he sees us and he sees us at our worst and he sees us at our best and he loves us still. It's a remarkable thing. And you know what I think is the most remarkable thing of all? From my position, from my stance here tonight in this place, looking online and looking in this room, I have no idea who God is calling in this room to pursue him and no idea who is rejecting him. So I just treat you all as if God is calling you. 
I assume that God wants to speak into every single soul, every single heart and life tonight and offer you an opportunity to go further with him, to step toward him, to receive a new touch from his, life, from his spirit this evening, to receive new hope. And it doesn't matter to me in one sense whether you've been a Christian 70 years or seven weeks. It doesn't matter to me that you're not yet a Christian. God tonight can draw you into his family, can take you further in your relationship with him, can open up your heart so that you can see something else about him. He can reveal something new about his character and his nature and his commitment to you this evening. Isn't that a remarkable thing? I wonder what would happen if when we gathered together, we came with an expectation that God wanted his grace to be manifested in our lives so that he would take us further. There's a modern idea, well it's not modern, it's been in the church for 2,000 years, that grace means you can do what you like. That grace means that your behaviour doesn't matter. That your actions, that your activities are, are of no consequence at all. That you don't need to read the Bible or pray or be engaged in fellowship because grace covers it all. That's not biblical. It's not right, it's not true. You see, as I said just a few moments ago, Grace confronts us. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the first four verses, the Apostle Paul reminds these Christians that he's writing to that they used to be in a different place. That they were once in darkness, they were once lost, they were once controlled by the prince of this world, Satan, the accuser, the master of evil. That they were once lost, groping about in the dark, trying to find a way out. Grace confronts us with who we once were. But grace also confronts us with our own weaknesses now. It confronts us with our inadequacies. It confronts us with our mistakes and our failures. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, if you don't preach to people that they are utterly dependent on God, then they'll never understand grace. We can't work our way out of our problems. We can't sort them out on our own. Christian salvation, following God, is not a self-help therapy. God is not trying to reform you. He's not trying to give you a souped-up version of yourself. He's not saying, you know, with a little bit of help here and a tweak there, with a little bit of work there and a little bit of a, a, an emphasis on that and this and the other thing, you'll end up a fantastic person. God's grace is rooted in this. Without him, we are lost. We cannot dig ourselves out of the hole that we have fallen into. Our society can't. Our culture can't. Our families can't. Our lives can't. And we can't. Grace confronts us with our own weakness. It confronts us with our own ineptitude. It confronts us with our own contradictions and it challenges us to the core of our being about what we rely on for our strength, our purpose, and our life. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible that unpacks the concept of what God can do in grace in a person's life is the beginning of a section of the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. 
And after the first eight or 11 verses where Jesus um, tells those that are listening to him about an upside down world in which they are blessed when they are mourning and they are satisfied when they are hungry and they are comforted when they are in sadness and they're given hope when they face despair. He tells them that they are the light of the world in verses 13 through to 16. And then in verses 17 through to 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells them that he has come to fulfill the law and to offer them life. And from verse 21 through to verse 48, Jesus, Matthew records Jesus as challenging key areas of their behavior and their action and their attitudes and their lifestyles. He challenges their words. He challenges their sexual conduct. He challenges their relationships. He challenges how they handle retaliation. He challenges how they handle promises. He challenges how they handle anger and broken down uh, trust between two groups of people. And every single time in all of those key areas, as Jesus is helping his new followers to understand who he is and what he can do, his whole teaching to them is rooted in grace. But six times, here is what he says. You have heard it said. And then he quotes something from Moses in the Old Testament, the Torah. And then he says, but I say unto you. And in all six occasions, he doesn't excuse bad behavior. He tells them that grace empowers better behavior. Six times. You have heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, if you so much as think hatred toward your brother in your heart, you have killed him. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look with lust upon another person, even in your heart, you've committed adultery. Six times in this centerpiece for Matthew of what Jesus came to teach and to demonstrate and to enable, he says to those that are close to him, walking closely to me is not an excuse for bad living. Walking closely to me enables you to live better. Enables you to be purer and holier and kinder. The last person I heard writing about that with depth of significance that has touched my soul was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, theologian, and martyr who died in 1945, just a short while before the end of the Second World War. He wrote a book called Costly Grace in which he said, following Jesus Christ is not an invitation to an easy life. It's an invitation to a surrendered life. And it lifts our capacity to live better. I wonder how you and I are doing with that tonight. Great tonight. Grace confronts us. If you're not a Christian yet, then how do you get out of the moral maze that you have found yourself in? If you're exploring Christian life, if you're tinkering with it around the edges... What's the pathway out? Better behavior? At this time of year, as Davey, Pastor Davy reminded us this morning, loads of people make New Year's resolutions. I'm going to get thinner. I'm going to get 
fitter, I'm going to get leaner, I'm going to get wealthier, I'm going to get happier, I'm going to get the right girlfriend or the right boyfriend, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And within weeks or months, most of them fall by the wayside. Because fundamentally, a resolution is rooted in our capacity to change ourselves. Grace is rooted in our inability to change ourselves. And in the reality that only God can change us. Let me ask you how you're doing. Not shinily on the outside. How are you doing? With those habits that you know need broken. With those things in your soul. Those voices that you just can't turn down. Those behaviors that you know are problematic. The things that are not working. The things that are dragging you away from joy and hope and purpose. You can't fix those on your own. The Irish theologian and writer C.S. Lewis says that our problem is not so much that we have believed in the grace of God too much. It is that we haven't believed in it enough. We've adopted a Christian faith that says God has shown us enough grace to get us into his family. But he hasn't. He kind of then leaves it up to us to work everything out. I don't think I could stay a Christian. If God said to me, here's the grace to come into my family. Now the rest is up to you. But I think many of us live like that. That it was grace that got us in the door and the rest is up to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why I can say with confidence tonight that every one of us needs to experience the grace of God here. From the person who is closest to Christ to the person who feels as if they're furthest away, grace confronts us. But grace comforts us. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that we are saved by grace through faith. Grace means that there's hope. No matter how trapped you might feel, no matter how dark our world might be, no matter how encaged you are, no matter how many times you have fallen, the Christian community believes that as long as there's breath in your body, there's hope. Grace comforts us. Where you are right now doesn't have to be the end of your story. That circumstance that hasn't changed doesn't have to be the determiner of your joy. God's grace means that things can change. A person can be forgiven. There is a fresh start. You can find a way out. You can be lifted out of the malaise. When you are part of a family where you watch people drink themselves to death because what they want is a way out and they can't see it, you realize how deeply and profoundly important it is that a Christian community offers grace to people. This church is a community of hope, not of legalism, not of fear. For every person here tonight, every person joining online, this is a community where God can do something in your soul. You will not be written off. No matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how many times you fall, this community believes that God can pick you up again. Somebody say, praise the Lord. How many times have you needed that? Sometimes I have a friend who um, uh, was really struggling with the church that he was in. 
And he, had, he phoned me several years ago and he said, Malcolm, I, just, I think I'm going to need to move. I said, why? He said, because for two years now, every time I go to church, when I come away, I feel worse than when I went. <laughs> Grace can comfort you tonight. Listen to this powerful statement made by the Lord Jesus Christ and recorded in the Gospel of John. He says to his followers in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundant. Words pregnant with hope. About 18 years ago, I went to see a young woman in Birmingham. She had fallen pregnant as a young teenager, and her church had disciplined her. They'd used the communion table. I don't want to get into a long conversation about this, but they had used the communion table as a weapon of discipline because they refused to serve her. I'm not sure that a communion table should be used as a weapon of discipline. But that's another sermon. But this young woman had fallen pregnant at 14. She'd been in quite a strict church and they had uh, taken action against her. Her mum and dad said that they weren't able to support her because she'd brought shame in the family. By the time I met her, she was 17, something like that. And she couldn't look me in the eye anymore. She couldn't look anybody in the eye because the way she'd been handled meant that she felt as if her life was over because of a mistake. At 17. And I sat with her. I'm going to call her Tracy. I sat with her and I said, Tracy, could you look at me? She said, I can't look at you. And I said, why? She said, because I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed of who I am. I'm so ashamed of what I've done. I'm so ashamed of the mistakes. My life is over. 17! 17! And I got out of my seat and I knelt beside her and I said, look at me. I said, here is the story of the gospel for you and for every other person. You were made in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Loved and cherished by God before you breathed a breath. Every day in your life was known to God. And yes, you have fallen. And yes, you have made a mistake. But I want you to know your life is not over. God can take the broken pieces of your life and he can shine through the cracks and can demonstrate something of his mercy and his kindness and his compassion to the world. He can restore your life. He can give you a bond with your daughter that will utterly transform how you see yourself and her. And this little girl, this little child that you call your daughter did nothing to anyone. In no way is she responsible for your choices. 
And God doesn't want her to grow up with a sense of inferiority and fear and anxiety and rejection because of mistakes that you made. But more importantly, he doesn't want you to grow up with a sense of fear and rejection and isolation because of the mistakes that you made. He wants to restore you. He wants to transform you. Your story might just be beginning. That's grace. Most of you will not be in that situation. Some of you might have been. I have had people sit in front of me as recently as four weeks ago saying, my marriage failed, I'm divorced, my life's over. You're not finished. Your life isn't over. God can pick up broken pieces and remake a life. I had an affair. I'm sorry, I've tried to put it right, but now I'm trapped in this existence. You're not trapped. Grace comforts us. Grace offers hope to people that are drowning and a way forward to people who don't know how to get out of the mess that they're in. A church that is full of perfect people is, I don't know what that is, but it's not a church. I'm going to confess something to you now so that you can pray for me because I need your prayers. Don't worry, it's not... Some of you are thinking, ooh. (laughs) Well, this tweet... (laughs) It's much more mundane than that. When I was coming out of my house... When I was coming out of my house this evening, I picked up the wrong Bible. So all of my notes for this sermon are sitting on my desk in Newton Arts. <laughs> in my new Revised Standard Version. And at the beginning of the service, I said, oh, Lord. <laughs> That's the polite thing that I said, oh, Lord. And I thought, no, 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 I've left, I'll have left my Bible in the car. That's what I've done. My other Bible will be in the car. Of course, it wasn't in the car. And then I stood at the car and thought, do I drive home to get my notes? And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to come in and talk to you because I've been studying this all week and trust that by the grace of God, the bits that need to stick will have stuck with me somehow and they'll stick with you. But I'm feeling pretty unstuck right now, so prayers would be appreciated. This is where preaching becomes a joint exercise of faith that I will hit with oil before you get bored. The third thing, a grace that confronts us and a grace that comforts us is the grace that calls us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says something remarkable. He says something similar in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. What a breathing hole when you're trapped under the ice of legalism and self-doubt. I am what I am. Am I a perfect man? No. Am I a perfect pastor? Definitely not. Am I a perfect preacher? Clearly not. I forget my notes. I'm not perfect in any area. 
But I am what I am by the grace of God. And he hasn't finished with me yet. I am not the perfect version of myself. And nor are you. In my years of ministry, I have discovered something about Christians. And maybe it's just my own particular experience. But it is this. The greatest challenge, I think, to those people that I have pastored over 33 years now is a sense of lack of confidence in what God is doing in them. It's not spiritual pride or arrogance. It is a failure to recognize that God is at work in their lives. It is a, a repeated tendency to put themselves down, to count themselves out, to think that they're not worth it, that they have nothing to contribute, that they're not people that God could use. I think perhaps because we often look to the perfected versions of sainthood that we see on platforms, none of which are true. And a failure of vulnerable leadership around us that helps us to see that we are all in formation. But grace calls us to a better life. It reminds us that there are possibilities of discovery tomorrow. Matt Chandler, the American pastor in Texas who struggled with a brain tumor for many years, says that sometimes without grace, it can feel like we are just constantly fighting battles between light and darkness, but every day they start over again. Grace believes that tomorrow we can take a step forward. That there is the possibility that Malcolm Duncan can become a better man. Now, you might not need that, but my wife and my children definitely need that to be true. That I can become a better man. That I can become a kinder man. A gentler man. A more patient man. Maybe I'm the only one that looks back on my life sometimes and thinks, do you know what? If you could live it again, what would you change? And I have a lot of stuff. I always get anxious about people that say to me, I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> There's nothing that I would change. As my mother used to say, shake your head, do you hear the water running? <laughs> There's nothing you would change. have literally so many things that I would change about how I brought up my children how we spent our money, the decisions that we made the way I've treated my beautiful wife, the way I've thought about myself things that, that I've done mistakes that I've made and if I cast my eyes to them, they are like flotsam and jetsam in the sea of life floating around me but I must Learn. I must practice lifting my eyes to heaven and seeing that God calls me higher. Imagine that there is more in your life to be done. There is more to discover. Imagine that this community is not yet perfect. You might be shocked by it. But that we don't need to write ourselves off. We don't need to pretend that we're perfect or pretend that we're useless. 
but that we can stand in real life and say, God is at work here. God is doing something. God is calling us into something. Follow Grace's voice. May it be like a perfume that scents the rooms of your soul. May it be like a a light that rises on the dawn and illuminates possibility to you for this year and for the years that lie ahead. I've been burdened this week as I've been praying for our church family because there are lots of young couples that are getting married in the next couple of years. Um, Catherine and Daniel, where's Daniel? I saw him earlier on, are getting married on the 28th of July. Um, Tyler and Hazel are getting married on the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you and all of that. (laughs) Star Wars themed wedding, they haven't told you yet. Tyler's coming dressed as Luke Skywalker. (laughs) And uh, Hazel's gonna be Princess Leah. Is, Is that not right? It is right, I thought it was right, yeah, thank you. Lots of couples that are getting married this year. And I find myself praying for them, praying that their lives, their marriages would be rooted in grace. Lots of people in our church looking forward to having children. I'm praying that you will be gracious parents, gracious grandparents, that our families would be scented by grace, that our homes would be scented by grace, that our words would be scented by grace. She's not here tonight, but last Sunday morning, Doris McCartney, and I'm kind of glad she's not here because I can talk to you about, about her without you telling her. Doris McCartney's the oldest member, the oldest female member of our church. The oldest male member is Sam Kirk Sr., who is here tonight. Sam's 140. No, he's not really. <laughs> Sam is 96. Doris is 99. Doris will be 100 in September. 100. And I looked at her last Sunday morning as she was leaving our church family and I thought, you know, I've never heard you say a bad word about anybody. Do you know people like that? They never say a bad word about anybody. And sometimes it frustrates you a little bit. (laughs) Not really. But as she left last Sunday, I said to the Lord, many years ago I asked God that I could preach a sermon on my 100th birthday. He might say no to that, but there's no harm in asking. But I said to him last Sunday, Lord, let me be known as a person who never says anything negative about anybody. Let grace call me higher. What if we made that commitment as a church? What if you made it tonight? Instead of going home and having the pasta for supper... You made a positional decision in your soul and in your heart that you'd never again speak negatively about anybody. Grace can call us higher. It can call us further. It can call us deeper. Grace confronts us. Grace comforts us. Grace calls us. And grace consecrates us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you then not to consider yourself more, by the grace of God, not to consider yourself more noble or more worthy than you are, but instead in humility to consider yourself as God sees you. God is calling Malcolm Duncan into a new chapter of life and ministry. I have no doubt about it. I am 
utterly convinced, as I have said over the last couple of Sundays, and if you're a visitor here tonight, just please give me the grace to talk to our church family for a moment. I am convinced that this decade in this church is going to be the most significant decade of our life together. And that he is calling us further and deeper. I do not have any idea, nor do I think you have, of where that might take us and what that might look like. But I think it involves the most remarkable journey together and the most remarkable opportunities to serve Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland and the United Kingdom and the continent of Europe and the world. I think God is going to raise up in this community politicians, businesswomen and businessmen, leaders, educators, researchers, medics, doctors, nurses, pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets, teachers, servers, elders, deacons, not just in the gathered church. One of the great emphases that God has laid on my heart for this next year and this next few years is what you are when you are scattered from this place. How you live out your life in every other area. But I, and I don't know what it will look like, but I know what it requires. And what it requires is consecration. Laying our agendas and our lives down before God and receiving his grace for a better thing that we cannot yet see. There's a verse in the Psalms that looks back on all that God has done and it says this, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. As we step into the rest of this year, as you step into your week, will you allow grace to confront you? And will you allow it to comfort you? And will you allow it to call you to a higher standard and a clearer set of choices? And will you allow yourself to be consecrated by God for what he wants so that you can lay your life before him? No one in this room is written off. No one is written off. And all of this begins as you respond to what God might be saying to you in this very moment.